I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hello, this is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work better. Thank you for listening. This week I've launched a mailing list, largely because there was so much left over from my book that I'm going to be giving it out on the mailing list for free. So if you're interested, you could sign up for that at eatsleepworkrepeat.fm. There's going to be extra chapters, things you can try with teams, a selection of the articles that are shaping the world of culture and more. Currently, I've been sort of sharing these things on Twitter, and you can find that by searching Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. But now the newsletter will provide the same in your inbox. Now, stuff I shared this week on Twitter, I've shared a lot about sync. Sync is this remarkable phenomenon, which you sort of, you observe in a lot of the papers on workplace interactions. And it's sort of like the dark matter of workplace culture, really. Researchers, I'll give you one example. Researchers put a group of rowers together and then got them to each row as hard as they could. Then they got another group of rowers together and they got those rowers to row in a sort of simulated boat. So where they needed to be in sync with each other for the, the boat to go. Here's a remarkable thing. They then tested the sort of the pain tolerance, the pain sufferance of these rowers. And the rowers who rowed in sync uh, could withstand double the pain of the other rowers. It's an illustration of how scientists observe the same phenomenon in different places. So you see it in choirs where groups of people sing together. You see it with, with people who dance together. So the question, of course, becomes how can your average workplace access this? Well, the anthropologist Robin Dunbar says a lot of this sync can be sort of recreated by laughing with others. Anyway, I love this stuff. You'll see some of that on the, the, uh, the newsletter. So if you're interested, sign up on the website. Or, or I guess go to our Twitter in the meantime. The only other plug I'll add is that this science makes up about a third of, of my new book, The Joy of Work. I'm going to add some dates to the website where you can come and see me around the launch of the book in January. But if you want to understand the science of sync, you can pre-order it. And it's worth flagging. American listeners uh, can order from UK Amazon, but the book will be coming to the US next. Now, uh, we're talking work culture in different ways for the next few episodes. The next two episodes after this are from the police force. But today's guest is the best-selling author of the year, Adam Kay. His book, This Is Going To Hurt, Secret Diaries of a Junior Doctor, has sold over a million copies. It's also won the Reader's Choice Book of the Year Award. So look, you know, there's a chance you've read it. And if you have read it, I think you'll love the discussion with Adam Kay because he takes us into the working environment, hospitals, and, and he sort of, it gives us an insight of, of 
his feeling that maybe didn't get captured in the book. If you've not read it, I could not recommend anything more than this beautiful, funny, principal book. In This Is Going To Hurt, Adam explains that the title Junior Doctor is a touch misleading. Effectively, anyone who isn't a consultant is titled Junior Doctor. As Adam describes, he's he's now a successful comedy writer and he left the health service after probably one of the worst days at work that any of us could ever suffer. And But actually, his motivation to write it after sort of a long period after leaving the job was largely because he observed underpaid, overworked health workers being politicised by the sort of the vampires who run modern day government, specifically the multimillionaire former health secretary, Jeremy Hunt, who claimed in some way that doctors were greedy. The book's the funniest thing you're going to read this year, but I think you'll find the discussion that we have thoughtful and and really gives you a clear insight into the working culture of hospitals. US listeners will know that the issue of single-payer healthcare is a hot topic in the US, where single-payer, of course, is the government. Um, in the US, we in the UK, we've got the NHS, and it's worth saying, as Adam says here, it's a source of national pride. We just need to fund it properly. So I hope you'll enjoy this as much as I did. I joined Adam for a chat at a restaurant in West London. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to me. I think you, the reason why I find this so heartening and, and so sort of life-affirming is that you've written this book that's fantastically funny, but also hidden within the humour. There's a lot of really serious points. Did, did you expect it to be such a success? I didn't expect it to be any kind of success, but I'm, I'm delighted it has been, mostly because... I, I wrote the book not to be funny, even though, I mean, the book's obviously a confidence trick. It's, uh, you know, it, it gets read because it's, it's notionally funny. But I wrote it to spread the, the message that's the, the subtext about the fact that it's, it's a difficult job being a, being a doctor. And the more people read it, the more people next time doctors come under fire will will know my side of the story the doctor's side of the story it sort of struck me a bit i remember seeing jamie oliver talk about um meat and saying that british people have got this natural aversion to seeing meat in its sort of unchopped up form and so consequently we put loads of rubbish in it and and you know we sort of hide away from the unspeakable truths and it just really struck me that by scratching below the surface of the NHS, that you see a lot of things that the NHS would rather you not see. The, the, I mean, the, the very fact, firstly, that people are in a state of sleep deprivation, exhaustion and, and overwork. I don't think the NHS is trying to, has ever tried to hide the fact that doctors work as hard as they do. It's that previously, doctors have never had a reason to stand up and say, we we really do sacrifice a lot for this job until, so the catalyst for the book basically was a couple of years ago when the junior doctors, you remember, were coming under fire from the government and the government were putting out this message that doctors are striking because they're being greedy, because they're being lazy, because they wanted more money and the truth was it was about working conditions and the patient's best interest and, and the government had such a loud voice and the doctors had such a quiet voice. The government won and um, I thought if more people knew quite how bad the hours are, the fact that you might work 97 hours in a week, the fact that 
doctors routinely you know cancel their own stag do's and 30th birthday parties to make the job work the fact that of the seven Christmases that I was qualified as a doctor I managed to see my family for one of them so it wasn't all bad and the fact that you move hospital once a year frequently hundreds of miles apart that was the sort of stuff that I wanted people to know about because we all realize that doctors work hard but I, I thought people might not realize we don't, we don't know what it's like generally we've got an idea about what someone's job involves but probably don't know the minutiae of it. But you say that the NHS doesn't try and mislead, but there's the diary card episode or exercise where there's a a sort of stock take, there's equivalent of of someone coming in to check the amount of hours that everyone's working. And there's definitely some misdirection that goes on there. there. Yeah, which is is internal rather than misdirection. So so I mean, the idea of this is that the hospital gets fined if they're working their doctors too hard. And then once a year or so, yeah, they do this stock take where every doctor has to fill in their uh, hours, all the junior doctors, by which is, I mean everyone who isn't a, a consultant. And uh, mysteriously on those days, the wards are flooded with consultants who've never previously been seen once on these wards, you know, making sure that everyone gets away on time. So yeah, that's, um, yeah, there, there, there is, there is jiggery pokery and, and tricksiness within hospitals. I don't think the NHS has ever, you know, broadcast itself to be anything other than it is to the public. I remember reading something uh, recently which was a study of people who worked in investment banking and and it was it was by an investment banker who'd turned a psychologist and she was looking at 120 hours a week and the the impact that that was having on people whether it was you know hair loss skin problems depression anxiety in one case cancer that she was sort of she attributed to it and, it, and I read through this and I thought, wow, it's exactly the same hours and, and, and the demands upon people. I mean, the, the way you describe the situation where a pager constantly bleeping, it reminded me of working in a fast food restaurant. Like, you know, just constant yeah. demands upon you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's full on. It really, really is full on. And uh, it, it, it isn't good for you. It isn't good for you. Shift work of any form has an impact on your life and your life expectancy. And it means you're often a bit of a shell when you're, when you're outside of work. I think one of the main things I wanted to get across was the idea of the doctor as a human being. So when you go and see a doctor, you don't want to think of them as too human because they're interpreting the MRI of your shoulder. They need to be 100% correct. But you know, humans, humans get things wrong and humans get sad and humans get sick. I did an antenatal clinic, so for, you know, for, for pregnant mums, uh, for a year and there's the traditional mismatch of doctors and patients in the clinic so the clinic overran by three hours every week and every week patients rightly would complain you know this is ridiculous I've been waiting three hours and problems with the car parking and the childcare and I would apologize and fair enough but not once in a year of doing this did a single patient say oh you probably don't want to be here either at eight o'clock when your contract said you finish at five. But you, it's just part of the job. You know, the, the NHS is kept going by people going beyond the call of duty. And previously, doctors, nurses haven't shouted about this because previously no one in government has said the doctors are being greedy, the doctors are being lazy. But as soon as that happens, that, that made me want to do my bit to help.
Right. So, so it was effectively the politicisation of doctors against their will by politicians, by, 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 yes. by them using you as yes. effectively hostages that sort of provoked you. Because you, you also talk about how these sort of like a, a gingerbread house of private health care that we're, we're led down a little uh, trail of crumbs and it, it's all painted as quite benign, the move, movement towards sort of privatisation. And the reason why, so back to what I open with, the reason why I find this book so inspiring is because you make that point really clearly that this is a dangerous path and we're going to concede something that we love dearly. It is, I think, there isn't going to be a big announcement in the Times one day which says, the NHS is over, there's a new private insurance-based system. It's going to be very stealthy, little corners here and there. And we can see it every time there's a new contract in an area given out to a private company. It's gonna happen very, very slowly. And it's going to be bad for the people who have the quietest voice. And those are the people who have the least. So the NHS, I think, is our greatest achievement as a civilization. It's free at the point of service, and it's based on clinical needs, not bank balance. As soon as it becomes something else, as soon as it becomes two-tier in any way, as soon as there's an insurance component, You'll be fine. I'll be fine. Most of the people who listen will be fine. But it's the people who have the least who won't be. They're the people who always suffer in this kind of system. And they're the people who have the, 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 the quietest voice. I mean, quite often you'll see, you know, below the, the line in a, you know, in a, in a newspaper article online or in the, comment, in the, in the, the letters pages of a, of a physical newspaper, someone will say things like, you know, um, you should just charge people five pounds to, to see a GP or five pounds to go to any. That will stop all the, you know, that'll solve all the... And the people who write this, five pounds is just, you know, the difference between a more expensive pet and a less expensive pet. For the people who are going to suffer, five pounds is the difference between feeding their children at all or not. Five pounds is unimaginable riches. And we don't think of it like that. But for the, peop the people who will suffer if the NHS changes, goes away... Well, are those people and we need to have a big grown-up conversation as a country about what we want what we what we want really I mean if we want an NHS which is free at the point of service for everyone based on clinical need not bank balance then we're gonna to have to pay a bit more money because at the moment there isn't enough money or if we think no actually we're paying enough as it is let's explore another model and I hope we don't decide that we need to we need to be honest and we need yeah. to have to the chat. And I think the, the reason why uh, this book is such a gift and like sitting at the top of the bestsellers is because it forces that debate that unfortunately we're, we're not really having, are we? You know, certainly there isn't, there isn't enough of a political debate about. It's it, principally, you know, if you, I suspect if you do Google Trends for how much the, the different search terms appeared, then winter crisis in the NHS probably appears every year. But it's only those sort of, those political crises that we get through every Christmas about the NHS Christmas crisis. Yeah, well, yeah, we need, to, we need to shine more of a light. And the NHS is stretched more than it's ever been. There's a crisis in recruitment, there's a crisis in retention. And I left medicine in 2010. I don't think you could read my book and think that oh, it was a particularly relaxing job. Now, frequently, doctors are carrying two bleeps, three bleeps. They're working on um, wards that are 50% staffed or even, even worse. Their, their jobs are more difficult than they've ever been. 
and, and that's an untenable situation. It's sort of a system that's already stretched thin in my day, is now stretched atom thin. And it doesn't take much of an inverted commas winter crisis to, to, to break the system. Yeah, you, you talk through the approach that you took, because obviously your book's very, very funny, and I'll never look at pram wheels in the same way again. And uh, it's like, it's, there's a lot of humour. But you mentioned, I was just interested in how much humour there exists in hospitals. Very funny things happen. In general, you have to develop your poker face. I use the funny stuff to my advantage. Because we don't talk about, as, as doctors, the bad stuff that happens. You're not trained in how to cope. You're not trained in resilience. You have to find your own way for a lot of doctors it's it's drink some doctors it's drugs a lot of doctors don't have a way of coping and leave the profession a tragic number don't have a way of coping and take their own lives and we never talk about that and for me my coping mechanism was looking for looking for the humor in the situation and 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 that's why these diaries sort of started in i didn't quite know at the time in retrospect they were quite clearly therapy but they are very funny places but they're also very sad places and I I wanted this book to be a fair reflection I wanted a junior doctor to be able to give this book to a friend or family member and say this is what it's like this is what my my job is and that meant balancing all of these these different aspects but there is a lot of humor in uh, in medicine you don't want your doctor to be Patch Adams cracking jokes, but nor do you want them to be robotic. It's, um, there's a bedside manner is is something that you cultivate, and there's a degree of there's a degree of acting. You have to disguise your emotions. I guess the consequence of that acting, you talked there a little bit about suicide. You describe a scene at, w- at one stage where I think is it a colleague that comes in, or there's someone that's known to people yeah, yeah, exactly. comes in a on a suicide attempt. Yeah, and so you know, you just reminded there. But I, I guess for me, I couldn't necessarily attribute that to the job, but just that people live already mentally challenging uh, yeah, it's, lives. It, no, it will never be as something as complicated as suicide will never be something as simple as it is the job. However, there is a disproportionately high rate of suicide amongst junior doctors, particularly female junior doctors. I had an email nearly two months ago from a junior doctor, because my it's, you know, it's very easy to get in touch with an author these days. Um, my email's on my website, someone got, people get in touch all the time, but one junior doctor said, since he'd started as a doctor two years previously, two colleagues had committed suicide and he could see himself being the third if he didn't do something about it and i've i've had a lot of messages from doctors in distress and i now know the places that they should contact there is no if you're a if you're a healthcare professional there's no samaritans number there's no nhs funded number that you can you can phone to seek help. There are sort of a few little charities here and there that, you know, this one's only for if you're a GP and only if you're in London, this one's... The support network isn't there. I, I just did a week at the, at the Garrick Theatre, reading my diaries on stage, and in my dressing room there's a notice board, and on it it said, Theatre Helpline, 24-7, confidential, you know, free, if you're worried about finances, if you're worried about this or that or the other, phone us, we're, we're qualified, we'll speak to you, we'll refer you to counselling. There was no such thing if you're in the medical profession. Right. 
um, because we're, it's the culture of we're a bloody doctor and a bloody get on with it and stiff up lip and a stiff drink. Because you, you mentioned that specifically, that um, these, uh, the, these one baby, when I think you, you deal with a premature baby initially and you go in and check on it every day and people find that odd or, odd or you go to one charming woman's funeral yep. and, um, and you're told very explicitly that you're not to go to this yes. funeral. Yes, doctors so, don't so, do it. Yes, it's you almost failed. It's like very old-fashioned English rather than British and it's like stiff upper lip, very English in absolutely. the way we approach it. Abs- absolutely, it's this... Here's the thing. When I started medical school at Imperial College uh, in London, uh, it was the first year that the topic of communication skills was on the syllabus, which feels very strange yeah. now that you think that's a cornerstone of medical education, and it absolutely is now, but it had to start for the first year, and I was in that first year. And I remember really vividly uh, being, on a, being in a hospital ward round with a consultant surgeon going around seeing patients and saying, I'm really sorry, I'm going to have to leave and I've got my communication skills lecture. And this surgeon said, you can't teach communication skills, you've either got it or you don't. Because that, that's what the approach is. And you don't talk about your feelings. And you don't talk about the bad stuff. That's, that's, what, that's why I found this pressure release valve of the, of the diaries. I... I get emails at least once a week. I'll have an email from a doctor that says, I've never told anyone this, but. So, I mean, my book, I'm not ruining any surprise because it's, I say this in the first page of the book that I left medicine because of very bad day at work. And, and it's rare for doctors to talk about the kind of thing. And so, I've never told anyone this, but. And then some often retired consultant will tell me this tragedy that's been haunting them that they've never told their spouse about they've never told their friends about they've never told their their kids about my own reason i left medicine which was it was which was horrendous i you know i worked in obstetrics and gynecology i was i was the most senior doctor at the time on a on a labor ward all you ever want is a healthy mum and a healthy baby and this was a situation where i ended up with with neither awfully and, and i realized that i wasn't cut out for, i wasn't made of the right stuff and I, it feels mad because it's been, it's been printed out so many times in, in books. And you know, I'm, I'm, I go around the country talking about it. But at the time, I, I didn't tell my parents. They knew that I'd left medicine. They right. didn't know why I'd left medicine because... Did you tell your partner? Because this was what was no, so interesting. No, Because I, I spoke to a fireman who said, if my wife, he described some haunting scene that he had to deal with after a, a train went through a level crossing. And then I said, oh, okay, did you talk? And he described how they used humour, actually, which I suspect was a long way from what you felt. But um, he, uh, I said, did you describe it to your partner? He said, if I described this to my partner, dealing with her horror would make... Would, would me have to focus on her? So you didn't describe it to your partner? You didn't describe no. it to so, your partner? So, I mean, I was, I, was in a, I was in a relationship through medicine which, uh, which d- didn't last for reasons much more complicated than, uh, uh, than just the job, but, you know, the job is, will always be part of it. And, but I'm in, a, I'm in a new relationship now. It's, and it's, it's fairly proper. We're married. We're going out eight years, you know. But um, the first time that he heard about this most impactful day of my life was six years after it happened, when I got up on, on stage for the first wow. time and read out from my diaries. And it's, you're, not meant to, you're not meant to talk about it. And that, that fireman you spoke to, his attitude is, is ingrained and it's pathological because we should be talking to people about it. Um, 
there's lots of evidence about how to cope. There's evidence for taking time out, which I wasn't offered. There's evidence for counselling. There's evidence for talking to people who aren't trained at all, just to get it off your chest. There's evidence for mindfulness. There's evidence for religion, if that's your bad. There's even evidence for, for tea. But we ignore all that and we just sort of get on with it. How did you make the transition from... So I, I recognise that you left this career that you probably felt burnt out and destroyed by. How did you make the transition to comedy writing? It wasn't, it wasn't an active decision. It was more the fact that I had to leave medicine and I also had to pay the gas bill. Right. And I, I trained for six years as a doctor straight out of school. And then I'd done six or seven years on the wards. I was trying to work out what is my skill set? What else do I have? And the only thing that I had I thought, I think I was right, was, was my humour. And at medical school, I'd done a bit of performing and stuff like that, which obviously fizzled away, you know, when, you know, when I left. I mean, that's the only thing they teach you at medical school yeah. about how to cope. They don't say that's what it is, but, you know, doing these silly Christmas reviews, making fun of, okay. you know, that, that, that's an old-fashioned part of medical school. Uh, and, and that's the, you know, the gallows humour is, is probably the, right. the reason. So... That was, I, I had to grapple around for something to do and I thought, right, I'm going to give comedy a go and I'll give it six months. If it's not, if it's not working, then it's not working. What I hadn't realised is that performing comedy is, is basically a driving job rather than a performing comedy job. Right. So, you know, you'll have, a, you'll have a performance in Durham, say you drive a thousand hours <laughs> to Durham, you're on stage for 20 minutes, then you drive back right. home because the money isn't enough to... to pay for a hotel and so it was a lot of driving. It's like Deliveroo where, exactly. where you're also delivering yes. the products. Yeah exactly, exactly exactly that um, and and also it's only at the only in the evenings and it's mostly Fridays Saturdays yeah. and I was sort of wasn't doing much else and so I ended up exploring comedy writing for television um, which um, felt like a sort of a natural transition and I got very lucky and, uh, and, and I've been very lucky since and people have been kind enough to recommend me if, when they've worked with me and, I, and I've been busy and I thought until the, until the book happened, you know, that was, that was my, my full time thing. I wrote comedy for, yeah. for telly. It's, it's, just, it's just an incredible coming together because there was a moment when I was reading the, the there's a moment where you have to take a sample from a, a an unfortunate baby and it's incredibly beautiful it's an incredibly moving and beautiful scene and it's through this book that's a combination of humor and you know celebrating the ridiculous things that people can put up their orifice and when it transitions into moments that are so powerful and so moving as a package it, it, it means that your experience of both being a doctor and as a comedian combines to make something that's incredibly powerful i think Oh, that's kind. But it, it is just the truth of the job. You can be in a clinic, antenatal clinic, and then something happens, which is so funny. You know you're going to be telling that story at the pub for two years, solidly. <laughs> and then the next patient, mm. yeah, absent heartbeat on the baby. Yeah, that's the worst moment in that family's life. It's just the, the nature of, of the job. And I suspect you're right. The fact that the book is predominantly funny means that there is there's more impact yeah. for the moments that that weren't and in fact obviously that what's in the book is is just a selection of stuff i wrote obviously lots of stuff ends up being missed out for whether you know 
because I wanted I wanted the balance to be right mm. of the funny versus the sad mm. versus lots of stuff got missed out. Um, but what I did notice going through it all chronologically is that initially I only ever really wrote about the funny stuff, and as time went on, I. I allowed myself, maybe I realized what I was doing, that it was helping me, and I started to write more of the sad stuff. Right. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, Harry Hill said that he delivered 14 babies. And I'm just wondering if, I know that you're no longer licensed, but maybe you and Harry Hill could deliver some babies together, maybe on the Isle of Man. <laughs> sort of licensing for comic relief, I'm thinking, might be good to get. There's a, there's a lot of... Are there of any other famous Doctor huge, comedians? Huge numbers, probably because of what we, we've already talked about, this sort of interrelationship of medicine and, uh, and humour as a coping mechanism, from Jonathan Miller to Graham okay. Chapman to Graham Garden, Mike Wozniak, the actor, is one of my best mates from... From medical school, there's huge numbers. Simon Brodkin, who does the Lee Nelson right. character, there's okay. There's as GPTA, there's a lot is of it. Is he a about. doctor? That Lee Nelson guy. He is Simon. Yeah, he um, in, again not practicing anymore, right. but yeah, absolutely. Right, went yeah. to medical school in Manchester. I right. think it was, but yeah. There's a lot of doctor comedians. So this could be a. This isn't just a one-off show. This could be a game show format that rolls on for weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just interested in the hierarchy in hospitals because you've given voice here to doctors. But I wonder if the real unvoiced, the, the people without a voice are the nurses. Yeah. Because like the, I presume there's quite a lot of hierarchy even within a, uh, an operating theatre. There are all different healthcare professionals and all of them are part of this jigsaw working far and beyond. There's 1.4 million people working in the NHS and they're all pulling together to keep the rest of us alive what doctors nurses physios pharmacists paramedics occupational therapists speech therapists so so many more and more and more i can only write my story but there should be you know there 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 is a place i think in the in the non-fiction market i mean there are some great stories by uh by nurses there's a there was a, a book out 
earlier this year by Chrissy Watson um, called The Language of Kindness um, about her uh, nursing journey. She's now a, a full-time writer and, and lecturer in, uh, in writing at one of the London universities, but was previously a nurse and has written very beautifully about that. It's, I can't claim to have invented the genre of medical uh, non-fiction. There's an extremely rich heritage of it, but I think what I've tried to focus on, which I'm not sure I read before, was the impact of the job on a human being at home and at work rather than just the nuts and bolts of the job. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I'm Bruce Daisley. You can sign up for the mailing list at eatsleepworkrepeat.fm and that's a a no-junk guarantee. It's just uh, the latest insight and some fantastic free stuff. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 